The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. I want to express appreciation to many who have served us very faithfully this week. I'm thankful for those from North City who ministered to us in music and helped us to set our hearts as we were preparing to hear the Word of God and to worship God together. I'm very thankful for New Life Presbyterian Church allowing us to use their wonderful facility, which has been so well-suited for our conference. And they go out of their way to do everything they can to make this comfortable for you. And they do a wonderful job. We're very, very thankful to God for them as well and how they've served us. I'm also very thankful uh, for, we've had many who have volunteered and given of their time. Uh, the logistics of this are incredible, and the logistics are something in which I am most, almost completely uninvolved, for which I'm very thankful. People come up to me asking me questions. I have no idea what the answers are. If you want to know what a verse is, I might be able to help you, but uh, people have taken over all of these logistics, caring for the speakers and making everything work. And many have volunteered to help, but those who have really worked the hardest especially have been our staff with Betsy and Craig and Marcia putting in hours that if OSHA knew, we would all be in trouble and maybe put, be put out of business. Um, they have worked very, very hard to the point of being tired. Actually, my talk is going to talk about how what happens to you physically, it helps how it affects you spiritually. And I'm wondering what we've done to these poor people physically is affecting their own souls in terms of just for a couple of weeks just working every waking moment to serve us and so i'm very very thankful to god for them and i'm i'm thankful for you the remnant that has stayed to the end and uh, you have been very encouraging for myself for the other speakers and giving us feedback that what you're receiving is feeding your soul and is equipping you and helping you which is what we're about and uh, we're very thankful for that. It means a lot to us. And I have been richly blessed by what I've heard. Uh, I thought you know, each of the speakers has done an outstanding job in the plenary sessions. And I was especially blessed this past hour. Uh, we've gone through something of a similar nature in our church, what Brian was describing in his. And so that was speaking very directly to me because sometimes you get tempted not to care anymore and praying that God would give me not just a dutiful response, but that I would really care from the heart. My topic is going to be caring for the whole person. And it's kind of an extended answer to the question Dave asked us last night, or yesterday afternoon in the panel, about what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started counseling? And... One thing I really wish I would have understood better is that though we are counseling souls, that souls live in bodies, and bodies live in a society and have history, people have history, and that it's important that we understand those things. And, and actually, I've been studying this topic, and the reason I actually got into this topic is Bob Kellerman, when they were putting together that book on Christ-centered biblical counseling, assigned me to write a chapter on this topic. And it really made me think about it uh, a lot in terms of comprehensively as biblical counselors, understanding how God has made people. And I think 
in the past we've fallen short with that. And just to take an example, uh, I'll make up kind of a compiled counselee. Her name is Connie. She's in her mid-40s. She grew up in a family where both of her parents were alcoholics. There was abuse in the home. When she was a teenager, she was following in her parents' footsteps. She was partying. She was experimenting with drugs. But in her early 20s, she professed faith in Christ, and her life seemed to turn around. She got married to a Christian man. She had three kids, and as they're growing up and the nest is beginning to empty, Connie, Connie's husband is very alarmed because she's been going on drinking binges. And she's gone back to something she thought had been gone a long time ago, and she's uh, going out and buying stuff, bringing it home, buying booze, and, and he tried to take away her credit cards, and she literally pawned the silver. She went and had to get the substances she thought would satisfy her. And uh, she's been diagnosed as potentially bipolar. But then, how do we explain what's going on with her? Does the genetics of being from a family with two alcoholics or two drunkards uh, have something to do with this? Were the influences in her life and her past history, does that have anything to do with why she's acting this way? Does her history somehow explain what she's done? And uh, to, to what extent does the way you are physically, again, genetically, hormones, it can be the way you're made, but it also can be things that happen to you, brain injuries or brain diseases. And psychologists talk about nature and nurture. Uh, nature uh, used to be the, the I'm sorry, nurture used to be the big emphasis. Nurture is how you were raised, and they would do studies, and they wanted to find identical twins, right? Ideally separated at birth, like the silly commercials on television about the basketball player, but you know, and separated from birth, and they try to see uh, if they came out with, if this one became a drunkard in one family, does this one become a drunkard in the other family, or if this one becomes a homosexual, or whatever the patterns may be, and, and the idea was that. Children are kind of blank slates, and their nurture, their environment, is what makes them what they are, messes them up. And we all can experience that to some degree. Whoever raised you, do you find yourself ever saying, you know, that's just what my mother would have said in this situation. I just heard it come out of my mouth. Uh, And then, more recently, there's been a great deal of emphasis placed upon nature, upon biology, upon genetics. Uh, You see articles in the newspaper on almost a weekly basis where they'll say, one in our local paper was, they're trying to find the gene genetically in in people who are pedophiles and why that may cause them to be pedophiles. Or, again, drunkards, alcoholics, gambling. There was an article about, you know, the infidelity gene that some people may have or the anti-infidelity gene, how somehow you're not some people are wired not to be unfaithful with their friend's wife, was an actual article in the newspaper. And so as they see human beings as physical beings, merely physical beings, then the solutions become uh, chemical. You know, with nurture, the idea would be talk therapy. And you sit down and kind of the stereotype, you're lying on the couch and tell me about your childhood and Hours and hours and hours, and after you know months of therapy and thousands of dollars, you're up to the ba- about the age nine. But then the other caricature, well, now it's real, is it's not just a psychiatrist, but it's 
the family physician that you come in and you complain about feeling kind of run down or fearful or worried or depressed and immediately I mean he spends five minutes with you and he's dispensing medications because the theory is that something's wrong with you physically and that's the cause of these problems and so we need to uh, give you pills and readjust you chemically to solve the problem now I was attracted to biblical counseling actually more than 30 years ago and really got engaged about 20 years ago and I was impressed by the truth of the sufficiency of the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And we hold to not just the inerrancy of Scripture, that there is no, nothing wrong, there's no, nothing fallible in the Scriptures. We also hold to the sufficiency of Scripture, that the Scripture contains all we need to know to help people with the problems of the soul. You know, psychology, soul, so the study of the soul. Well, the book by which you understand the soul, the textbook is the Word of God, which explains who we are, created by God in His image, body and soul. And that was something that, and, and you see, and you know, I still hold to fundamentally what I did 20 and 30 years ago, that I do believe that drugs are way overprescribed. There are now secular studies done showing that uh, antidepressants are ineffective for the majority of people who try them. Uh, I, I do believe that uh, the Word of God contains the answer for every spiritual problem. I'm, I'm still skeptical of, and I was very skeptical in terms of you know, delving into the past. We as biblical counselors tend to focus on the present and uh, not wanting to hear all this detailed history and the Bible does not teach, and we do not believe in either social determinism or genetic determinism. We do not believe that someone is just made by society or made by his family, and that is what he is inevitably. We also don't believe that you become whatever you were born to be genetically, and that's, again, you're just stuck in that. I'm really thankful to believe in that, aren't you? What a sad thing it would be just to say, well, you know, you were born in this kind of family, you were abused, you're going to be an abuser, you got the pedophile gene, so we'll just try to keep you locked up, but there's nothing that can be done about it. And delighting in the sufficiency of Scripture, in my early counseling with IBCD going back almost 20 years ago, I had cases that really confirmed the power of the Word of God. Um, case of a guy that actually this was on our website I don't know if it still is of this guy giving his testimony a guy named Harold who came he was very open about his testimony at that time he was in his mid to late 60s he was very depressed he had been labeled an alcoholic he was sometimes sleeping 16 hours or more a day he uh, was under the care of a psychiatrist who was giving him various strong drugs and increasing dosages. He was going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings where he was told, was given the label and the identity that he is an alcoholic. He will be for the rest of his life. And he needs to be going to these meetings for the rest of his life. He was even going to a marriage and family therapist. And a family member sent him to us wondering if there might be a spiritual problem. And as he came to us by God's grace, as he, we heard his story and a lot of what he was describing is a life where he'd been very busy, very active, serving the Lord, superintendent of the Sunday school, involved in missions, and that he had retired some years ago. And in the midst of that retirement, he was just focused on pleasing himself and living the good life. He was done with 
kind of both hard work, but also done with serving the Lord. And is in the very first session, I had him read Psalm 32, and it's describing how sin affects one physically, which we'll get to a little bit more later. And uh, so when I kept, the psalmist says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning day and night. And I, I said to him that, I don't know your heart, but I have a theory I'd like to run by you. And that is, could it be that you're depressed and you're turning to these other things because you've taken a vacation from the Lord and you ceased serving him? And that's really the problem. And he caught on to that really quickly. He says, do you mean my problem isn't that I'm an alcoholic by nature? My problem isn't that I have a disease or depression? My problem is that I'm a sinner. I said, yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. And something that the Lord just does, I mean, I've sometimes said in my younger years, if you remember the Mr. Magoo cartoon where the guy that can't see is driving around and nothing bad ever happens to him in spite of the fact he deserves to crash a thousand times. Well, God in his wonderful grace just did an amazing work in this man and his life was transformed. And over time, he made the decision to work with his doctor to get off of the drugs the doctor said, if you do this, you're going to be suicidal. I can't take responsibility. I will never let you come to me again. As you're, you know, I don't want you to be my patient. He got off the drugs. He got out of AA. Again, he was told, you're going to be the gutter. You're going to be a drunkard. You know, your life's going to be ruined. And uh, he instead was turning to the Lord in the church. And I had lunch with Harold uh, a couple weeks ago. And since then, Harold has not taken any psychotropic drug. Harold has not had a major bout of depression. Harold has not been drunk. Harold has gone through a season of serving the Lord. He's pushing 90 now. And uh, that seems to confirm my paradigm. We just addressed the soul. We had other cases as well. And even the cases where there wasn't a result, somebody would come in and they would describe just all kinds of sin patterns. A woman comes in and she's describing conflict with her husband, conflict with her kids, very undisciplined life. And uh, she said she kind of felt depressed, and so we would try to address that spiritually. Then she'd come back and say, well, I went to my doctor, and he said that I've got a disease, and he gave me these pills. I don't need to talk to you anymore. And I, I tried to say, well, I'm not sure everything that's wrong with you, but I think that there are really important spiritual issues here that ought to be addressed before you just decide to take the pills or to you have a disease. But they'd go away. But again, it kind of confirmed my paradigm. But then the Lord sent us cases that didn't follow my paradigm so closely. We had the wife of uh, a seminary student and one of our interns, and she came many years ago, and she was feeling very depressed. And I tried to probe every possible thing I knew from Scripture. I, you know, I didn't say, well, what is your sin? You know, you are the man or woman or something like that. But still, just what, and, and I never could figure out, when, and to this day, in terms of what's causing this. Um, I would, we had counselees who were literally hearing voices. I don't have a verse that takes away voices, do you? And people would have unclear thinking and imagining things. And uh, a guy who had been on meth, and he's hearing voices and is delusional. And another person who's had a brain injury and can't sequence his thoughts. And uh, I can tell that guy, well, you need to get a job and you need to work, but his brain can't function in that kind of environment. And we've had cases even of those in our own movement, in the biblical counseling movement, where uh, they've had severe depression or family members on severe depression, and it got to be so severe 
they did turn to psychiatry and medication just to stabilize someone who was spiraling down out of control. And I, I could go on with, with more examples. Uh, another person in our movement who find out that his young adult son has an undeveloped, underdeveloped brain frontal lobe. And that makes life complicated in terms of, none of this excuses sin, but it affects memory, it can affect personality, um, and it can make this person really challenge whether people thrive. There have been issues that 40 years ago biblical counselors thought were behavioral issues. And you could take an example of OCD or schizophrenia, and medical research will show that you can actually see in the brain of, of someone who's truly schizophrenic, there is deterioration going on in the brain. That's not a sin problem, the deter brain deterioration. And similar studies have shown brain activity of a certain type in those who are OCD. And, and so it's, it's humbling for us. And I think humbling is always good for us. But as biblical counselors, we have this tendency to reject medication. We have a tendency to say everything is spiritual. But... There are issues we need to understand in terms of understanding human nature that we, we have bodies that need to be understood. Our counselees have physical issues going on that need to be understood or at least considered. There are going to be times we don't even understand. We have to admit, I'm not sure. But we need to take these things into account. In the same way as biblical counselors, we tend to focus on the present. I, I think it can be inappropriate to go through the past in horrible detail and healing of the memories and making up forgiveness scenes with dead people and all that. I don't think that's scriptural to go through all that. But sometimes to really understand somebody, you have to understand their past. As we've been dealing with uh, victims of horrible abuse, that it, it takes them talking about what they've never talked about before to be able to process biblically what's happened to them in their history so they can move on with life and be happy in marriage. Now, the Bible offers hope. That's a spiritual problem. But we need to be good listeners, and sometimes, again, the, the factors of history or nurture are going to matter as well. Um, so understanding human nature, I've already referenced this briefly, that we are duplex creatures. We, are, we have an, an inner nature, a spiritual nature, then we have bodies. But my soul is right now inside my body. <laughs> my soul lives with this body, and they affect each other. In, in the Bible... You know, Paul talks about the outward man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so there's, there's this inner person, and, and it's referred to as the heart, the soul, the mind, the spirit. And the part of ourselves is we think and we remember, we choose, we interact with God, we love God with our heart, mind, soul. And it's in the heart, it's on our inner self that we're in covenant with God. I'll mention here briefly, there's some people who divide the inner self into soul and spirit. From my, I don't want to argue that today, other than to say we, we're physical beings, but there is a second aspect I, that is, is spiritual. And, and, and the outer person and the inner person are interacting with each other. That what the inner person chooses is carried out through the outer, outer person. That Jesus says, his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. So what comes out of my mouth physically and makes sound that other people can hear comes out of me from what is in my nature, my body carrying it out. Paul talks in Romans 6 how 
spiritually. We, have, we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. That inwardly I've been transformed. My old man has died. I'm a new person in Christ. That's talking about my inner nature. My body didn't change when I became a Christian. My soul has been transformed, thanks be to God. But then he says, don't then go on presenting your body parts as instruments for sin. The inner man carries out his desires through the body, through the flesh. For us as believers, um, you know, our bodies are thought of as, as, as the temple of the Spirit. I mean, you might think of it loosely as uh, hardware and software. <laughs> and the software is controlling the hardware, and, and both, by the way, have viruses. Um, Secular materialists deny the existence of the soul, and that's something right now in psychiatry, psychology, even medical science, which is, is really wrong and dangerous, is that they claim everything about you is merely physical, that your feelings, your passions, your choices, your desires are just electronic brainwaves that will cease when your body dies, that everything can be explained physically. That's why they try to address everything physically. Uh, Nancy Murphy, a professor at Fuller, quote, says... Nearly all the human capacities or faculties once attributed to the soul are now seen to be functions of the brain. And so what we would say is going on in your soul, they say is just electrons flying around between your ears, and that is merely who you are. And David Pallison says the problem with this theory is there's no you in the person. But the Bible addresses the you. The Bible addresses the soul. But we need to understand the whole person. We're addressing the inner self, but we need to understand the person is embodied. And then your body exists within culture, which also influences you. It, you can't help that. And so you're living in the world, and you're being influenced by the people around you. So uh, as we counsel people, we speak to the soul, but we understand that that soul is living in a body, and there's some things that are common with all bodies. All bodies are fallen and troubled. But there's some things that people have unique body problems, including brain problems, for which we should have compassion and understanding. And to be very careful not to label as merely sinful what may not be truly sinful. And that requires some humility as well. And likewise, we need to understand the environment in which they live. So you understand how your outer self influences your heart and, and vice versa. Both, as I said, have viruses. Both have been affected by the fall in, in Romans 5, among other places. And the scripture describes how that as one through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So our, our soul is corrupted by sin. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says we can't even think straight. We can't even understand the things of God by nature. Romans 8 says that we're incapable of, of following God's law. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. So our souls have been affected by the fall. We now are sinners from conception and we're spiritually dead in sin. But also our bodies have been affected. As the creation groans, awaiting the Savior. Our bodies groan, and, and we have things happen physically in terms of injuries, and you know any body part can fail. Uh, two years ago, I was up here in a stool because I had an Achilles injury. Uh, six months ago, I had a shoulder injury, and different things go wrong, cancers. But the brain can go wrong. Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, uh, autism, 
and uh, our bodies can mess us up. Somebody has sleep apnea and they can't get sleep, that may cause more brain problems. So brain problems can be brought on. You see what happens to somebody when they haven't slept for days. Their brain gets hurt. Their brain gets injured. And it may take a long time for it to recover. Some bodily weaknesses are temporary. Others are long-term. Um, you know, when you get really exhausted, like Craig and Marcia might be right now, uh, that may affect your soul. But you know if you get some rest and recovery, of course, we're counseling on Monday, so I'm not quite sure when that rest and recovery will come for them or me, uh, you can feel better. But there are other things that are just ongoing. Uh, schizophrenia doesn't get better if your brain is deteriorating or Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. Uh, but one day we will be absent from the body, present from the Lord, to live as Christ, to die as gain, better to be with the Lord. So your inner self affects the body, and I'm going to go through some of this a little more quickly and trust you that I've got more verses in my notes than I can read to you today. The classic example is David. When David, in first, Second Samuel 11, commits adultery, tries to cover it up, kills the husband, marries the, the girl, he writes Psalm 32, and he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me as with the fever heat of summer. Now, if you were to go through the DSM and analyze David's situation, you might see that he meets the qualifications for being clinically depressed. But his problem is not a chemical imbalance with his serotonin. The problem with David is he has sinned. And what his soul chose to do is tearing his body apart. He can't sleep. He has no energy. And so many times, what, what sin does to us affects us in an immediate sense. Or other issues as well. Uh, someone who's overcome by fur, worry and fear and anger, and they're dwelling on these things, may be sleepless. And then sleeplessness messages you up in other ways. Others who are consumed by fear may have panic attacks, where the, the body is shaking and it, go, it can go into shock. And it, it's what's going on in the, mind, in the soul of the person but then it's affecting him physically, including the, the brain. And, and the Proverbs even describe how your body can reflect what's in your heart. The, the countenance of a person, or what you do, winking and, and other things you can do, facial expressions that uh, even your pulse can reflect, your blood pressure can reflect, what's going on in your heart and your soul. We've already said that the, the, what, what the body desires, what the soul desires is carried out through the body, Jesus says it's from the heart that sin comes. Adulteries and murders and fornications and all these things. Um, thanks be to God that what the gospel does for us, as Romans 6 is describing, that now we don't have to let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we obey its lusts, because inwardly we are now new creatures in Christ. Inwardly, the old soul, the old self, which was totally enslaved to sin and helpless, and unable to keep God's law because we've been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, we can fight the, the fleshly desires of our own souls. But also your body influences the inner person. What, what happens to you physically is an influence spiritually. It's an influence. It's not a determining factor. Um, the person who is overeating and becomes obese is going to have more likelihood of diabetes, high blood pressure, low energy, and even depression. Uh, chronic pain. I mentioned soldier's shoulder surgery. By the way, if you get a pick, 
pick Achilles injuries over shoulder surgery, if anybody asks you. Uh, after the shoulder surgery, there was such ongoing pain. I went probably about two months where I don't think I ever slept more than two hours at a time. I was traveling during a lot of that time. And I could see how it was affecting me. I was more tempted to be depressed. I was more tempted to be angry and irritable and despairing. And it was just the exhaustion of it all and, and the pain compounding that. were constant pain. And you got a choice of being drugged up or in pain. Neither is good. And uh, people who get sick or get cancer, uh, th- there's a struggle of the soul that goes along with that. Uh, hormonal issues. And, you know, women have patterns of hormones, but all of us have things going on that are different at different times. And it can be more tempting to be impatient or angry or discouraged. Um, I've had people, counselees, on medications. And they would say, well, I'm taking prednisone or I'm taking this or that. And one of the side effects is irritability. And I don't question that. You'll be more tempted by that. My point will be it never is the cause of sin. But, and, and that's the thing, so your body can never cause your heart to sin. When someone is tempted, James says, never let him say he's being tempted by God. You can't say, God made me this way, therefore I had to get drunk, get angry, commit sexual sin, whatever it is. The body, the Bible decisively steers us away from genetic determinism. We are moral beings accountable to God. Uh, God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it be good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12, 14. The sin comes within the heart. I've already mentioned Mark 7. Likewise, James, lust conceived gives birth to sin. Sin results in death. It's your own sinful desires in your soul which leads you to do these things. Now, what I will say, and the more counseling I've done, the more I'm willing to acknowledge this, is that each of us, again, in general, we're sinners by nature. We're all from, we, we all are predisposed to sin. And what I've learned is different ones of us have different ways we're tempted, right? I mean, in your own family, this one's tempted to anger, this one's tempted to substance abuse, this one's tempted to gluttony, this one's tempted to sexual immorality. I mean, we all have something, Right? I'm thankful not every single one of them is intense in my life. I'm th- even in my counselees, there's usually this one, this, this spouse is, is tending to be judgmental and angry. The other one has worry. Uh, you know, but we're all struggling with something. Is that identifiable genetically? I'm not sure. They claim to say, well, we can find this gene that people with this gene more tend to be alcoholic. More people with this gene tend to be homosexual. That may be true. Again, just from experience, we know we all deal with different things because each of us is made differently physically and spiritually. But they've not done a study saying every single person with this gene is a homosexual. Every single person with this gene is a drunkard. The point being that in Christ, even if you have a temptation in a particular area, by God's grace, you can overcome that. And even not even every unbeliever falls into that. So you may have, that may be something that's tempting for you. But it's not determined for you. And then 1 Corinthians 10.13, you know very well, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So however God has made you, you can't say, well, I've just been made in a way that I just get angry or I get drunk or I'm immoral. God has given you a way of escape. His Spirit indwells you. His Word informs you. The Gospel empowers you. Welch writes, the body can make you miserable, but it can't make you sin. 
And the inner self chooses how to respond to bodily temptation. That's why you need to watch over your heart. For from it are the wellsprings of life. It's your heart that decides whether you're going to give in to the temptation. Your body may even contribute to you feeling the temptation. So how does this apply in counseling? Those of us who counsel need to understand, at least keep in mind bodily weaknesses. We cannot ignore them. Uh, Sometimes we need to weep with those who weep. Uh, What else can you say to a young man in his early 20s who was progressing through college and he has a terrible brain injury and now for a couple of years his he he looks perfectly normal he carries on a normal conversation but he cannot sequence he can you can't give him a list and say do these four things you can tell him to do one thing and he'll start doing that and then he won't know what to do next his brain is malfunctioning uh, there are people with brain diseases and again an, another woman and her family background is I think both parents uh, took their own lives. One was schizophrenic, one had Alzheimer's. And now as she's approaching her early 60s, she is delusional. She is imagining that her husband is stealing her stuff and hiding it. She's imagining that her husband's trying to poison her. Now, is she a paranoid schizophrenic? That's what some might label her. How do you help her? Well, one thing is just to have compassion. It must be terrifying that your mind is telling you lies, that you can't rely upon your brain to think clearly. Now, what I believe is that even issues of the body have a sp- always have a spiritual component. Welsh brings that out and blame it on the brain as well. There may be a body issue. There's always a spiritual issue. But we should have compassion. Again, the Alzheimer's patient, um, the, the young woman having... Uh, psychotic episodes where, again, she's out of her mind and delusional and she's having to go on some very heavy meds. Will she ever be able to get married? Will she ever, if she got married, ever be able to have children? And even those with chronic pain, and in their chronic pain, they're tempted to want to take their own life or give up or fall into despair. And, and, And then the challenge is sometimes trying to distinguish between what is a real bodily weakness or injury and where is their sin? And sometimes there's some of each. Sometimes bodily weakness can be used as an excuse for sin. I'll take the brain-injured young man. Well, he can say, well, look, I can't get a job. I can't function, so I'll just sit and watch TV all day. I'll just sit and do video games all day. That's going too far, isn't it? Part of our job as a biblical counselor is to help him, perhaps working with a physician. What can he do? If, maybe it is that he will need a situation where a parent or a friend has to kind of be around him and tell him the next thing to do, but keep doing things, even if he can't sequence himself, rather than to say, I'm disabled, I can do nothing. So we, we want to try to distinguish between what is physical, what is spiritual. Medical opinions can be of great help to us in those situations. It can be helpful for you as a counselor to learn about various brain diseases and brain issues. The, the real motivators would be when you get a counselor who's got that problem, and then you need to do some research. Great if you have a doctor to whom you can talk in terms of Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive perceptual disorders, head injury, stroke, autism, uh, schizophrenia. When in doubt, assume the best. Love hopes all things. I think that's one error we as biblical counselors can make, is somebody comes in and they're not functioning at work or 
they're feeling feelings of depression. And I think one thing we have to consider is there could be something physical going on. And grace demands that I, I give that allowance. You know, it might just be you're undergoing a great trial and I need to have compassion for you, but also to help you to overcome that trial. You may have things going on with you physically that I don't have that make it really hard for you to do what the Bible says in some areas of your life. But if the Bible says it, back to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I can also tell you from the Word of God, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He will give you a way to fulfill what He has called you to do. Now, it may be if you're brain injured, God has not called you to be a CEO. It may be you've not even been called to live on your own for the foreseeable future, but to work with that person, but to do so charitably. This is something when we had Charles Hodges here for the conference when he talked about good mood, bad mood, depression, and bipolar issues, among other things. And something he said really blew away my old paradigm, but I haven't found a way to refute it. He made the statement that using psychotropic drugs is an issue of Christian liberty. That's something you wouldn't have heard at an IBCD conference, perhaps, in the distant past. Um, the point being, I still believe, and I believe actual secular research shows that the great majority of the uses of psychotropic drugs are probably unnecessary and even unhelpful, and that the side effects are, can be harmful. But in a particular case, because God alone knows all things, and I don't know all things, is it possible there's something going on physically with this person's brain that I don't understand, and there may be a medication that helps it. Sometimes you can do a brain scan, and you can say, yeah, that guy's got a brain thing going on, and it's clearly he's deteriorating, and he shows all the symptoms, and you can have compassion. If there's, if there's a drug to make the voices go away, he's free to take the drug. But even if somebody comes, and I, still, I would agree with Dr. Hodges that 90% of the people who go on depression meds are just sad. <laughs> And the Bible has an answer for sadness, and it's not medical. But I don't have a an infallible way of determining who the other 10% are, if it's 10% or if it's 5% or if it's 1%. And I can't forbid them from trying the drug. My approach will be, I would like to address with you the spiritual issues first. And you'll be happier probably if you're not on the drug. But if they're already on the drug, I'm not telling them they can't take the drug. If they decide they want to, I say, go to your doctor and tell them you want to get off the drug. Um, but when in doubt, there needs to be some grace. There needs to be charity. And there needs to be humility. I don't fully understand. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. By the way, even the person who is struggling with physical issues is fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And he needs to embrace that. And we need to embrace that. But it's sometimes very hard. You, you get labels like ADHD, which is, I think, again, you say, well, Aren't all little boys kind of that way, right? You know, um, but are there some kids that are extraordinarily that way? I think we can sinfully judge others by saying, well, you know, if those parents just did what I did, if they just read the book I read, their kid wouldn't be so hyper. That kid really may be wired in a way that he's at 10,000 megahertz or something and he's just spinning around all the time. I don't want to give kids drugs. That's a last resort in my mind. But I can at least feel compassion. These parents may be dealing with something, and this kid may be dealing with something that I never had to deal with with my kids. We need to be humble about body issues. By the way, even the doctors don't know all that much. 
I was reading articles this week where they're trying to develop physical tests by which they could actually diagnose depression. Right now, they don't have a chemical or physical test that is any kind of reliable predictor of whether a depression med will work or whether they can say your serotonin's off, but that's because you tell them how you feel. They don't actually stick a needle in your brain and pull out your serotonin levels for you. They're trying to find a way. They don't know either. But we as Christians ought to be humble people. And no matter what, there are spiritual things going on. Sometimes the issue is, and I found this with people who are delusional, people who have been diagnosed with mental illnesses. I know George had a whole session on that. But sometimes it's teaching them to live with this trial, almost like you're teaching someone to live with cancer or something else. Learning to trust the Word of God and learning to trust the people who love them because as scary as it might be, you can't trust your brain. Your brain is telling you things that are not true. Could it be that their sin has messed up their brain and they're thinking, it might be, I, how can I know for sure? I can't judge them as being guilty of that unless I've got some proof. It could be their meth use did it. That was sin in one sense, but now their brain is really injured. And they need to learn to stop listening to the voices and to trust God and trust people who love them. We can minister to them that way, but we can't always make the voice go away. Um, I've seen counselees respond to that. One example, I had a friend who had a procedure where it affected, it, it, it was brain surgery. And a couple of us noticed that a part of his personality had shifted a bit. And he had become impatient in certain situations where before he had patience. But it was interesting, we talked to him about it. And by God's grace, he was able now to realize, I have to be more careful here. Before I could kind of go on autopilot and my filters were working. Now my filters aren't working as well. I have to really think about this. And his behavior changed. And that's a combination of, of the two things I'm talking about. Um, and then people who have these injuries or these weaknesses may need to humbly accept, again, humbly accept their, their limitations. That's really a spiritual struggle to say that I shouldn't be driving now. Or, you know, the person with Alzheimer's. I shouldn't be managing my finances anymore. Those are spiritual struggles. And then sometimes the caregivers need some encouragement too, don't they? So as we encourage them, every believer, every person, sorry, every be human being is fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. God did not make a mistake with you, but also God is sovereign. And, you know, John 9, who sinned this man or his uh, parents? Neither. It was for the glory of God. God has allowed this for some reason. And I will say God... I'm sure is working in different lives for His glory. We just want to see what He's doing here. Bodily weaknesses cannot hold you back from spiritual growth. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, and we don't know exactly what that is. I'm not going to theorize about it now. It sounds like a physical trial to me as part of it. But he says God actually used that physical trial to strengthen him spiritually. And so having physical limitations or even disabilities, even brain problems cannot stop you from growing spiritually. They may actually contribute to your growth. And then don't allow partial bodily weakness to keep you from doing what you can. That's one of the big problems I see with people who may be diagnosed with disabilities, especially mental disabilities, is that if you can function at 60%, let's shoot for 60%. Let's even see if we can bump it to 62% instead of, well, I've got this problem, I can't function at 100%, so it'll be zero. Don't waste the life God has given you. Work with people to live that life for the glory of God so far as they're able. And then 
through Christ, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. You can be what God would have you to be in spite of whatever it is going on in your life by the strength God gives you, by His Spirit working in you. It may not be what everybody else is like, but sin does not have to reign in your body. You can glorify God. And of course, one day you can look forward to when Christ returns and you will have a new body like His body, including the brain. You're broken, you're damaged, your weak brain will be replaced in that day. And you won't have to struggle in this way anymore. So, first point, big point, is we need to have compassion and understand that the body affects the soul. We counsel souls. We need to understand bodily issues. And a big part of that is sometimes you have to admit, I don't really know. Humility is a very important characteristic for you as a biblical counselor. You may not know the cause of this person's depression or their fear, whether there is a physical element along with the spiritual element. There's always going to be a spiritual element. You can always address that. But you cannot fully understand what's going on with them physically. And then the second I'll, I'll cover more briefly is we also need to understand how someone's nurture, their environment, their social context, that also affects their heart. Our bodies live in society. We've had experiences and if you grew up in an abusive family, you may be tempted, like Connie in my illustration, to be an abusive adult, but for the grace of God. If you grow up among people who are indulgent of, of drugs and alcohol, you may be more tempted in that way. We've been dealing recently with girls who were sexually abused as minors. And that experience is important for us to understand to help them. To process that. that the, the, again, the good news is, back to you're not genetically determined and you're not socially determined. How sad it would be to say, well, you know, you were abused as a child, you're going to be an abuser, there's nothing we can do about it. Your parents were drunkards, you're going to be a drunkard, just try to go to A meetings and don't fall in the gutter too often. Thanks be to God that what the Scripture teaches, the Scripture teaches that your experience is important, it's significant and it's influential, but whatever your experience is can be overcome by God's grace. So God made us to be social creatures. He created Adam not alone but with Eve and then family. We're to love each other. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. And we all live in a fallen world. We all, we all have come from dysfunctional families because none of us were raised by sinless people. Right? And you know, when somebody gets on and they're whining about their family, we all have gone through bad situations, some much worse than others, and we should have compassion there. Paul says, I mean, John says in 1 John 5, the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. He's messing up families and schools and nations. We need to be aware of those influences. In, in Deuteronomy 7 and among other places, Israel was repeatedly warned about the influence of the Egyptians whom they were leaving and the Canaanites where they were going and they were told to have nothing to do with these people. Don't intermarry with these people. Don't adopt their laws and their practices. They're really a bad influence. Israel sadly did not pay, pay attention to that. And they were influenced. They did worship the Baals. And they did fall into immorality. And even Solomon intermarrying with them. And that influence corrupted them. Solomon lost half his kingdom in the next, or most of his kingdom in the next generation because of the influences. But but we're not responsible. We're, we're responsible, though, to respond to the influences wisely. Likewise, the book of Proverbs: the one who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. Don't go with an angry man. The Proverbs warn. So the people 
in your life will influence you. New Testament, bad company corrupts good morals. Separate yourself, 2 Corinthians 4. Um, and, and there are some people who deliberately choose bad influences. And that's, by the way, that's an example. We've seen families that would, their, their kid was getting involved with the wrong crowd and drugs and uh, all kinds of evil. And so they say, we're going to move to get our kid away from that wrong crowd. And so they move thousands of miles to a new place, disrupt their whole life. You know what happens? That kid's been there a week and he finds friends who are smoking pot. The problem is not externally the influences on the kid. The problem is that kid's like a magnet to evil. And it's his heart that's the problem. And, and so, but, but there are other people who tragically are hurt by influences beyond their control. When, again, it's one of the cases we're dealing with in the Philippines where a pastor invites you to his home and you think his wife's going to be there and, and he's not and you're a 16-year-old girl and then he forces himself upon you. She didn't sin for that to happen to her. It's like in Deuteronomy 22 where the woman is caught in the field and the man rapes her and uh, there are people who have been molested by relatives. There have been people who have physically harmed and beaten, raised with abusive drunkards. We also can be positively influenced. You know, Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. The proverb does say, he who walks with the wise will be wise. Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Proverbs tell us that godly parents are going to be a great influence. Jesus left us an example, Peter says, to follow in his steps as he suffered righteously and humbly. And when he washed the feet of his disciples, he says, this I've done for you, I'm your teacher and your He says, do what I did. But just like the body is not determinative, neither are social influences. The heart chooses how to respond. And one example, I'm not going to turn there because of time, but in Ezekiel 18, some of you have heard me talk about this passage before, you have three generations. You have a righteous father who would have been a great influence on his family. Some of us who were raised in non-Christian homes, don't you wish you had a godly father who kept the law of God, who told you the gospel, and who stayed away from evil? We have this righteous father in Ezekiel 18 in the beginning, but then he has a wicked son. And the wicked son, in spite of the good influence of his father, does all the bad things the father didn't do and, is, and fails to do all the good things the father did. But then that man has the grandson of the first guy. And that man, instead of being influenced by his wicked father, he turns from the way of his wicked father and performs the righteous deeds of his grandfather. They each choose. By God's grace, we can overcome evil influences because we have a new identity in Christ. I was reading a book one time put out by a major publisher, which I generally appreciate, and I read a section of that book where they were describing how weak fathers produce homosexual sons. That was what some expert was saying. And the guy even said, I've never seen, the, the, the guy that was the so-called expert said, I've never seen a case in which there's been a homosexual son where there's been a strong father. That's social determinism of a kind. It's also, there's nothing in the Bible to support that. It may be that having a weak father will make it a greater temptation to be homosexual for some people, just like something genetically may make it a greater temptation, but it's not determinative. And part of what broke my heart is I have friends who are strong men who have had sons that have homosexual temptation or even have fallen into homosexual sin it wasn't because the father failed to do his job that 
we are not determined that way. And even if your father did fail to do your job, uh, I love First Peter 1. It's, it's worth turning to at this point. Is, is really the proof of what I'm saying, that of what the gospel has done, that you may have come from the dysfunctional family. You, you, know, you may know people whose parents were idol worshipers, who were involved in false religion, who were involved in the occult, who were involved in sexual sin, drugs, anything you can imagine. And, and they may have, in your early years, influenced you to follow in their wicked steps. You may have been surrounded by friends who were involved in all kinds of evil. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 1, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Do you see what that passage is saying? It says, even if you inherited a futile way of life from your forefathers, your father was an angry drunk and an adulterer. Your mother was a self-absorbed alcoholic or whatever you would say. No matter what it was, the blood of Christ has delivered you from that. When you came to Christ, you were set free. You're not determined by your family or your friends or your culture. Christ has set you free from all of that. You're a new creature in Him and you can walk in His ways by the power of His Spirit. Thanks be to God. That doesn't, however, mean that we're not interested in what people have been through. I want to hear what they've been through so I can get them to 1 Peter 1. And I can tell the girl who was molested by her brother or her stepbrother or her uncle or her grandfather. And if I'm telling her, my wife's in the room, I would add. <laughs> but I can tell her that what's been done to you, it was wrong. But... It doesn't have to ruin your life. It doesn't have to make you an abuser. It doesn't have to keep you from being able to find love in marriage. It doesn't have to make you a bitter person, a lifelong victim whose identity is, I'm the daughter of an alcoholic, or whatever the different things the world does in terms of social determinism. You have been redeemed at a great price. The blood of Christ was shed not merely to forgive you of your sin, but to set you free from your experience to set you free from the people who had influence in your life. And so, you know, even, even the, the, the so-called generational sins, and, and I don't have time to go into the details in exegeting that, but we've been set free from the generational sins when we turn to Christ. You can choose to continue in the folly of your forefathers, or you can choose in your soul to reject the wicked influences and come under the influence of Jesus. So counseling people who have difficulties in social relationships, difficult history, we should not ignore them. We should compassionately listen to draw them out. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, that you know, there's something in the heart of a man that's like deep water, but a man of understanding learns to draw it out. So much of what Bob taught about and has come out about Brian and, and caring for people is when you love people, part of loving them is you do a lot of listening and there's nothing wrong. I don't say put them on a couch and spend three months hearing about you know, birth to kindergarten or something. But there's something to be said when someone's hurting just to listen and to weep with those who reap, as Romans 12 says, and to, and to, to embody the compassion of Christ. People are hurting. And it helps to see that there is a care. And then don't let them blame their sin on outside influences. 
It's from the heart that sin comes. That's, again, part of the point in Mark 4. It's not what you eat that makes you a sinner. It's not what comes at you from the outside. It's the inside. And you were tempted in these ways, and that's tragic. But it doesn't force you to sin now. Because Christ has set you free. He's given you a new heart and a new nature which has enabled you by His Spirit to resist the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. Sometimes you have to help a counselee go through the history and evaluate it biblically to recognize the sins of others for what they are, to overcome the fear of man which brings a snare and to change a focus from pleasing people to pleasing God, to choose companions and friends wisely. Tom Maxim gave me some counsel as I was working on this and he, he wrote to me that one thing that came to mind as an aspect of the nurture influence is people often respond to negative influence not by turning to God but by believing lies instead. For example, a kid not cared for by his parents and so he believes the lie the most important thing in life is to be cared for by another person. This is often the root problem and they, they've been controlled by that sin. So it's turning to Christ that His Word is the guide for your life. And then you're set free from the lies that what other people think matters most. And so what happens is God becomes the primary influence. The, the outside influence in your life, instead of being your parents or your friends, you trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You're the tree planted by the streams of water instead of being the weed or the bush growing and dying in the desert. And then... Is adopted children of God. Isn't that an amazing blessing? We are adopted children of God. That's now your new family influence. And then the psalmist can say, in Psalm 27.10, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Isn't that a lovely verse? My father and my mother may have forsaken me, but I have the Lord, and He will care for me. We can offer hope, but to offer that hope, sometimes we have to listen and understand and care and weep and then point them to the one who will never let them down. And then along with that, ideally, the influence of the people of God as we provoke one another to love and good deeds, as we love each other, as we have examples even to follow as we follow Christ. Brian mentioned Joseph. I think of Joseph also as a guy who was obviously very much hurt by his social environment with his brothers. But because God, became, God was the primary influence of his life, he did not become an embittered, nasty person, socially determined. But rather, his, his nature was determined by his relationship with God. Another example would be Daniel. Some people are afraid to put their kids in public schools. How about Daniel, right? Daniel went to the worst public school you can imagine. But God gave him grace not to be conformed to the world. So, we as biblical counselors, we want to care for the whole person. We're not just caring for souls. Their souls are in bodies which have a big influence on them. And the bodies are in a world which can rough them up a lot. We should be humble. We should be compassionate. While we reject both social determinism and genetic determinism. The Bible itself tells us we should care about these things. We have a Savior who took on a body like ours. A body 
that had weakness. He knows what it is to struggle with bodily weakness. He hungered. He thirsted. He knows what it's like to endure abuse from others socially. He experienced the same influences and He stands as a mediator for you who can with compassion intercede for you to whom you can go and find sympathy and help in your time of need. And He has set you free from what the flesh would have done to you, from what the world would have done to you because you've been united to Him by His grace. Secular counselors really don't have much to offer somebody with body problems or with social problems. We have Christ. We have His Word. We have His Spirit. That's what people need. And just to close, a few verses from 2 Corinthians 4. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing value of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in body. And skipping down to verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that sometimes we've not fully understood your word as it speaks to people. There was never an insufficiency in your word, but there has been weakness in us sometimes, even as counselors. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand better that we need to care for the whole person. Help us to have compassion on those suffering, suffering with bodily weakness, with brain weakness. Help us to be humble when we just don't understand and not pretend we know more than we know. Help us to care for them and to minister to them how the gospel gives them hope in the midst of their struggles because of a future hope of glory and, and perfection in both body and soul. Lord, for any here who are struggling with what's happened in the past, give them hope that we have been redeemed from the futile way of life of our forefathers, now to be adopted sons and daughters of God through Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org.